Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. His story, Tick, 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 won the Hugo, and he has been shortlisted for awards including the Hugo, Nebula, Campbell, and Sturgeon. His stories have appeared in Asimov's Analog, FNSF, Tor.com, numerous years' best anthologies, and his award-winning collection, Space Magic. Here's David Levine. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Oh, here's, here's the mic. Hi. Um, so, wow, what a great crowd. I am, I am so thrilled to be here. Um, and, um, and yeah, I'm, I, it's great to be here. And I'm just going to start with a little, a, little, uh, a little ditty that I wrote about the song. I'm, I'm going to start with a little song that I wrote um, about the book. Um, and you'll probably recognize the tune. How does a Martian fatherless, daughter of a planter and a heartless harridan dragged back to earth and its gravity, humidity, stuffed into a white dress grow up to be a great adventuress, learn mechanics, mathematics from her dear father. She got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter. By 14, she roamed the desert with her Martian partners every day. She was learning posture in Latin. But every night, she and her brother would batten down the hatches, hit the desert, go and trackin' and whackin'. Her brother backtrackin', their Martian nanny was clackin'. Then their mother ascertained and devastation reigned. Arabella saw her future drip drippin' down the drain. Mother hauled her back to Oxford with its mud and its rain. Arabella's fertile brain felt the sting of boredom's pain. She didn't fit into her mother's world of gossip and dancing. She'd rather stride across the desert in a pair of leather pants and hack her dad's automata cause she had bigger plans. And the world's gonna know her name. What's your name, girl? Arabella Ashby. Her name is Arabella Ashby. And she don't know what she's gonna be. But just you wait, just you wait. Daddy sent an automaton to Earth to help her bear it, but it broke in transit and she had to repair it. As she fiddled and she twiddled, she felt Daddy by her side. But then she got a letter that her father had died. Visited a cousin, the cousin pulled a gun on her, locked her in a closet, then he set off on a run for her. Brother back on Mars, gonna kill him, take the family farm. She's the only person who can keep him safe from harm. There would have been nothing left to do for someone less astute. She would have been dead or destitute without a cent of restitution started running. 
gunning for her cousin on his Mars trip. Gonna make her way to Mars and stop him on a faster ship in drag. As a boy in some clothes she got her hands on. Snagged a coach to London. See her now as she stands on the deck of a ship heading for her homeland. With new clothes a girl can be a new man. Arabella Ashby. Adventures waiting in the sky for you. You would never back down, you never learn to take your time. Oh, Arabella Ashby, you are getting set to fly with you. Will you rescue the family name? Will you enter the Hall of Fame? The world's will never be the same. The ship is over London now, see if you can spot her. Frightened but determined, yeah, she's her father's daughter. An aerial adventuress, no one she met forgot her. You'll fly with her, you'll fight with her, you'll cry with her, you might die with her. And me? I'm the damn fool that wrote her. And I don't know what she's gonna be, but just you wait. What's your name, girl? Arabella Ashby. So, spoilers. <laughs> so, but we are here. We are here for. Uh, we are here for a reading, not just uh, not just rap music. Uh, so, I'm going to start at the very beginning, which I'm told is a very good place to start. Uh, so, it begin, begins with the prologue and is entitled "The Last Straw." Arabella Ashbury lay prone atop a dune, her whole length pressed tight upon the cool red sands of Mars. The silence of the night lay unbroken, save for the distant cry of a hunting kulek, and a wind off the desert brought a familiar potpourri to her nose, koresh sap, and the cinnamon smell of Martians, and the sharp, distinctive fragrance of the sand itself. She glanced up at Phobos, still some fingers span short of Arcturus, then back down to the darkness of the very floor of the valley floor where Michael would, she knew, soon appear. Beneath the fur-trimmed leather of her thukong, her heart beat a fast tattoo, racing not only from the exertion of her rush to the top of this dune, but from the exhilaration of delicious anticipation. For this, she was certain, was the night she would finally defeat her brother in the game of Shorash Kekshura, or Hound and Hare. The game was simple enough. Tonight, Michael played the part of the Kshura, a nimble runner of the plains, while Arabella took the role of the Shorash, a fierce and cunning predator. His assignment this night was to race from the stone out crop they called Old Broken Nose to the drying sheds on the south side of the manor house, a distance of some two miles. Her job was to stop him. But though Kema had said the youngest Martian children would play this game as soon as their shells hardened, it was also a sophisticated strategic exercise, one that Michael, three years her elder, had nearly always won in the weeks they'd been playing it. But tonight, the victory would be Arabella's, for she had been observing Michael assiduously for the past few nights, and she had noted that despite Kema's constant injunctions against predictability, he nearly always traversed this valley when he wished to evade detection. Its sides were steep, its shadows deep at every time of night, and the soft sands of the valley floor hushed every footfall. But that would avail him little if his pursuer reached the valley before he did and prepared an ambush, which is exactly what Arabella had done. Again, she cast her eyes upward. At Michael's usual pace, he would arrive just as Phobos, in his passage through the sky, reached the bright star Arcturus, about half past two in the morning. 
but as she looked up, her eye was drawn by another point of light, one brighter than Arcturus and moving still faster than Phobos, an airship cruising so high above the planet that her sails caught the sun's light long before dawn. From the size and brightness of the moving light, she must be a Marsman, one of the great Mars company ships, the aristocrats of the air that plied the interplanetary atmosphere between Mars and Earth. Perhaps some of her masts or spars or planks had even originated here on this very plantation as one of the great Koresh trees that towered in patient soldierly rows north and east of the manor house. Someday, Arabella, haught, Arabella thought, perhaps she might take passage on such a ship. To sail the air and see the asteroids and visit the swamps of Venus would be a grand adventure indeed. But to be sure, no matter how much she traveled, she would always return to her beloved wood thrush woods. Suddenly, a shuff of boots on sand snatched her awareness from the interplanetary atmosphere back to the valley floor. Michael! She had been careless. While her attention had been occupied by the ship, Michael had drawn nearly abreast of her position. Now she had mere moments in which to act. Scrambling to her feet in the dune's soft sand, she hurled herself down into the shadowed canyon, a tolerable 12-foot drop that would give her the momentum she needed to overcome her brother's advantages in size and weight. But in her haste, she misjudged her leap, landing instead in a thorny gora shrub halfway up the canyon's far wall and earning a painful scratch on her head. She cursed enthusiastically in English and Martian as she struggled to free herself from the shrub's thorns and sticky, acrid-smelling sap. Heavens, dear sister, Michael laughed, breathing hard from his run. Such language. He doubled back in order to aid her in extricating herself. But Arabella had not given up on the game. She held out her hand as though for assistance, and as soon as he grasped it, she pulled him down into the shrub with her. The thorny branch that had trapped her snapped as soon as he fell upon it, and the two of them rolled together down the canyon wall, tussling and laughing in the sand like a pair of Tureth pups. Then they rolled into a patch of moonlight, and though Michael had the upper hand, he suddenly ceased his attempts to pin her to the ground. What is the matter, dear brother? Arabella gasped, even as she prepared to hurl him over her head with her legs. But in this place, there was enough light for her, to see, for, her, for her to see his face clearly, and his expression was so grave, she checked herself. You are injured, he said, disentangling himself from her. It is only a scratch, she replied. But the pain when she touched her injured scalp was sharp, and her hand when she brought it away and examined it beneath Phobos's dim light was black with blood. Michael brought his handkerchief from his thukong pocket and pressed it against the wound, causing Arabella to draw in a hissing breath through her teeth. Lie still, he said, his voice quite serious. Is it very bad, then? He made no reply, but as she lay on the cool sand, her breath fogging the air and perspiration chilling on her face, she felt something seeping through her hair and dripping steadily, steadily from the lower edge of her ear, and the iron smell of blood was strong in the air. Michael's jaw tightened, and he pressed harder with the handkerchief. Arabella's breath came shallow, and she determined not to cry out from the pain. And then Kama appeared, slipping silently from the shadows, the subtle facets of her eyes reflecting in the starlight. She had, of course, been watching them all along, unobserved. Her capabilities of tracking and concealment were far beyond anything Arabella or Michael could even begin to approach. You leapt too late, Tutuka, she said. A Tutuka was a small, harmless herbivore, and Kama often called her this as a pet name. I will do better next time, Italia, Arabella replied through gritted teeth. I am certain you will. Michael looked up at Kama, his eyes shining. It's not stopping. Without a word, Kama knelt and inspected the wound, her eye stalks bending close and the hard, cool carapace of her pointed fingertips delicately teasing the matted hair aside. Arabella bit her lip hard. She would not cry. 
this is beyond my skills, Kama said at last, sitting back on her haunches. You require a human physician. At that, Arabella did cry out. No, she exclaimed, clutching at her Italia's sleeve. We cannot. Mother will be furious. We will endeavor to keep this from her. I'll stop there. Sadly, mother does find out. Um, and uh, so she gets hauled back to Earth. Um, and, uh, and while on Earth, uh, she gets a letter um, that her father has died back on Mars. Um, and in order to save the family fortune from her evil cousin, she has to travel to Mars by the quickest means possible. And so she eventually winds up dressing as a boy and signing on board the Mars Company aerial clipper, Diana. Um, and so this next, this next scene, uh, this next scene, she is aboard Diana. They are floating on the Thames first thing in the morning, and they're just about to depart for Mars. Ahoy, the boat! Came a cry to Arabella's left. From across the water came the came the reply. Furnace man! She turned to see, making its way across the Thames in the pale light of the rising sun, a most extraordinary sight. A huge boat, very wide and shallow, was being rowed toward Diana from the riverbank by two dozen grunting, heaving men. At the center of the boat, swiveling atop a sort of plinth, was a barrel the size of a hogshead, closed with a lid at one end, and at the other, an enormous canvas tube, three or four feet in diameter, stretched from the bottom of the barrel down to the water on the far side of the boat. From that point, the tube bulging and trembling as though it were stuffed with fidgeting mice, floated on the Thames from the boat all the way back to the bank, where it entered a gaping door in the seawall. Above that door loomed a square brick building, atop which four huge chimneys belched out vast quantities of smoke. Arabella gaped at the extraordinary craft. The laboring oarsmen were all black with coal dust, and the grime on their faces was streaked with sweat, though the morning was quite chill. She understood why, as the boat drew alongside and was made fast to Diana with stout cables. Once the boat was secured, the oarsmen unscrewed the lid from the, battle, from the barrel, and a great wind, hotter than the sultriest August day and smelling of coal smoke, roared from it with tremendous force. The canvas tube wilted slightly, yet so great was the rush of air that it remained mostly inflated. Arabella, 50 feet or more away, had to hold her cap onto her head with both hands. Two men leapt down from Diana, bearing a similar canvas tube with them, and attached it to the open end of the barrel. At once the tube from the ship snapped taut, and the roar of wind from the open barrel was replaced by a thrumming through the deck beneath Arabella's feet. A rough hand smacked down on Arabella's shoulder. It was Font, his expression stern. Bear a hand, man, he said. Aye, aye, sir, she said without thinking. The enormous box the size of a carriage into which the balloon envelopes had been stowed on the previous day had been opened again, and from its top emerged a gradually inflating mass of Venusian silk. Glowing in the light of the rising sun, the three huge balloons resembled white fluffy clouds drifting in over some far horizon. But they were not clouds, they were not fluffy, and they were not far. They were gigantic masses of fabric, as huge and ungainly as a thousand wet bedsheets, and as the furnace hot air began to fill them, it took every bit of the entire crew's strength and skill to keep them from tangling with each other and with the net of silk ropes that caged them and tethered them to the ship. Light and smooth though the Venusian silk was, tugging and hauling on it, soon left Arabella's hands red and sore and blistered. 
An hour later, Arabella lay panting on the deck, watching the balloons as they firmed up and grew taut so high above her. The sun was well up now, and the bright white Venusian silk gleamed like a trio of full moons brought down to earth. Unlike the previous day, when she knew now they had been filled only with cold air to test for leaks, the balloons not only swelled against the constraining nets, but strained upwards as though desperate to reach the sky. The ship, too, seemed to feel the upward pull, riding high in the water and rocking in a new and unsteady motion bearing more kinship to the wind than the wave. Trim ballast and prepare to cast off, came a command from the quarterdeck. It was Kerrigan, the chief mate, and was echoed, re-echoed, and amplified down the length of the ship. Airmen sprang into action, many hurrying below, others hauling on ropes. Arabella had no idea what to do, but her messmate, Young, sat on moving on the deck, so she did the same. The ship began to shudder and lurch as Kerrigan called out command after incomprehensible command. Each one was repeated or expanded into a series of other commands by lesser officers who related to the airmen designated captains of the waste, the forecastle, and other parts of the ship, who in turn directed their men to perform whatever task was desired. This Arabella knew in theory. In practice, it meant that she did whatever font the captain of the waste told her to. And when, as was so often the case, she had no idea what his aerial gibberish meant, she could only watch the other members of her mess and try to do the same. The captain stood beside Kerrigan, arms folded behind his back, the calm in the center of this storm of activity. He watched everything, though, and from time to time he would mutter softly to Kerrigan, a word or two immediately translated into a fusillade of shouted commands. He had not spoken to Arabella once after handing her off to Kerrigan. He hoped, she hoped he had not forgotten her. Now Kerrigan cried off, cast off the furnace gut, and the already feverish activity of the men grew still more agitated. Young poked her elbow. This'll be a sign, he said, and moved to the rail. She followed, and with him she looked down at the gray Thames where it lapped Diana's hull. The ship was riding much higher now, five feet or more of dripping Koresh wood showing above the waterline. The furnace men now unfastened Diana's tube from their barrel, blasting Arabella with a great gust of hot, smoky air that rippled the balloons high above, and put their oars in the water, backing away from the ship with what seemed considerable haste. Two of Diana's airmen hauled the sagging tube from the water and out of sight below the curve of her hull. The ship seemed to pause. Arabella looked to the captain, whose eyes scanned the length of the ship, looking for any fault or error or she knew not what. Then he nodded briskly and spoke one word to Kerrigan. Ballast away, fore and aft, Kerrigan cried. With a creak of wood and a great rumbling rush that made, the rail, that made the rail vibrate against Arabella's chest, several small ports opened in the hull below her, each discharging a square column of frothing, filthy water. The whole ship trembled. Then, suddenly, she burst aloft. Arabella's stomach seemed to drop below her rope belt as the ship flung herself into the air, and she found herself whooping with surprise and excitement. So did all the other crew, a great wild hurrah that echoed off the Thames rapidly receding below. Arabella leaned as far, as far as she could over the rail. The river immediately below churned, a great ship-shaped roiling welt in the water showing the space Diana had just vacated. Water continued to pour from the ballast ports. More water ran down the ship's sides, flowed along the keel, and fell in a great stream from the rudder. In moments, the ship rose as high as a tall house, as a church steeple, as a, for as a soaring bird, giving Arabella a view she had never before even contemplated. The whole dockside area spread out below her like some huge and complex toy, the river crowded with boats and ships and barges. Nearby, another airship was just filling her envelopes, the great tube running to the furnace house on the shore seeming little larger than a shoelace. Threads of smoke rose into the air, rose up below her from a hundred chimneys. 
A few early morning promenaders and milkmen with their carts trod the streets, the horses looking absurdly like mice when seen from above. Some of the people waved hands or hats at the rising ship, and Arabella waved her hat at them in turn. Others ignored the miracle above them, plodding along head down and oblivious. One fellow shouted and gestured rudely as a trickle of falling water cut across his courtyard. As Diana rose higher, Arabella's view expanded. Now she could make out the great, the great double curve of the Thames, as plain as any map. From here she could see not just the dockyards, but the crowded center of London, rank on rank of houses, shops, and great public buildings. That pencil laid across the Thames must be London Bridge, and the large building and park just to its north, Bedlam Hospital. Diana's shadow sailed across Arabella's view. She followed it with her eyes, watching as it skimmed silently across streets, parks, and rooftops. Immediately surrounding it, panes of glass and puddles of water glinted the rising sun back into her eyes, ringing the airship's silhouette with a glittering halo of light. The whole teeming metropolis was visible now, seething with the motion of 10,000 early risers, maybe even a million, a great human anthill filled with busy workers. A hand clapped onto her shoulder. Impressive view, eh, lads? Arabella looked back to see Font, his hands on her shoulder and Young's. Young stood at stiff attention, eyes staring rigidly ahead, and Arabella realized she might be in trouble. I, she said in a neutral tone. Well, if somebody don't start shoveling coal pretty soon, we won't have that pretty view very much longer now, will we? Young seemed to wilt beneath Font's hand. I suppose that would be us then, Arabella said. It would indeed. Now get below. Thank you very much. Um, so, uh, what now? Do we have do we have a break or Q and A? Q &A? Okay, we take a break. Okay, so. Buy some books and have some. Yes, yes, I'm totally. I have a I have a pen, and I'm not afraid to use it. Thank you very much. Yeah, so we'll take a, a 10 or 15 minute break, buy the books, they got them up front, and we'll be back in a few minutes with, with Helen Marshall. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.